Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we're talking about death. Obviously, there's been plenty of death in our timeline so far, but we haven't really addressed it as a concept in and of itself. Today's movie falls into a category I'm still taking credit for inventing, since only my friends use it. Movie vegetables. Movies you need to see because they're good for you, even if you don't particularly enjoy them or they aren't to your usual taste. If a black and white Swedish film from the 1950s doesn't particularly appeal to you, tough, shut up and watch your vegetables. You really do need to see The Seventh Seal. Though it is a period film of sorts, I think it's best to see it as a fantasy. Not in the Lord of the Rings sense, but in the sense that it's whimsical. It's a sort of dark comedy that laughs at death and humanity. Our main character is Antonius Bloch, a Swedish knight just returning home from the Crusades after 10 years, and about to find that his country is suffering from the ravages of the Black Death. Death himself appears before Antonius as he's relaxing by the shore with his squire. Antonius is played by Max von Sydow, who you may know from his brief appearance at the beginning of The Force Awakens, or as the old Three-Eyed Raven who instructs Bran in Game of Thrones. Here he's just 28 years old. Death isn't just here for a chat, but Antonius challenges him to a game of chess for his life. And as Death is an intellectual, he agrees. Our friends Bill and Ted, of course, challenge Death as well during their bogus journey, an idea taken directly from The Seventh Seal. Antonius's fate is not decided here and now. His game with death continues throughout the film. And to everyone else, it just looks as though he's playing a game by himself, but we see the pale-faced and black-cloaked death engaging in philosophical discussions with Antonius while they play. There's not really a plot in this movie, but little stories pop up as Antonius travels across Sweden. Another main character in the film is Joff, a traveling juggler who performs with his wife and another actor. And Joff claims to have visions, but he also enjoys telling stories full of little white lies to entertain his wife. So she adores him, but never really quite knows when he's telling the truth or when he's just teasing. And their trio is on their way to perform at a feast in Elsinore. So let's take a minute to try to get our geography figured out here. The film doesn't really spell any of it out, but it didn't really have a reason to. So the Baltic Sea separates Sweden from mainland Europe. So I think it's safe to say that when we saw Antonius on the shore at the start of the film, he was on the southern coast of Sweden. Elsinore should then be the same location as the Shakespeare play Hamlet. Hamlet is obviously set in Denmark, but Elsinore is just two miles across the sea from southern Sweden. And the story of Hamlet is set in roughly the same time period as our movie today. And let's go ahead and talk about the timeline of our movie. Again, it's kind of a fantasy, and it's not very clear when it's set, but that's part of the fantasy idea I mentioned. And I'm going with roughly the mid-1300s. That's likely too late for a crusader to be returning home, but far too early for an historical Swedish painter we're about to meet in the film. But it is about right for the Black Death in the middle. Antonius and his squire stop at a church, and the man painting it tells them about the plague, how the people with it suffer and are covered with boils. These boils are swollen lymph nodes, which form what are called bubos, 
which is what gives the disease its name, the bubonic plague. The painter here is Albertus Pichter, a famous Swedish artist from the late 15th century. So again, he's more than 100 years early here, but I think that works perfectly for the, the fantasy element in this movie. It's not really an issue here to have our characters encounter someone from a different time. They see him here because he will be here. Or maybe he's not even really here when our characters come through. Pictor happens to have created a painting called Death Playing Chess that inspired what we see in The Seventh Seal. While Pictor is talking to Antonius' squire, Antonius himself is talking to a priest of the church. He's confessing that he's not sure whether or not he believes in God, and he's frustrated that if there is a God, why would he leave any room for doubt? He says he's not afraid to die, but he really wants to know whether or not there's an afterlife before he does. I wrote down a line here that he says, We carve out an idol of our fear and call it God. What Antonius doesn't realize here is that the priest he's talking to is actually death. We, the audience, know, but Antonius can't see him through the confessional screen. He also inadvertently gives away his chess strategy before realizing who he was talking to. This whole movie really is just an existential one. Man's vain run from death. Even the mural Pictor is working on while they're here is the dance of death, with death leading souls to the afterlife. This is also often called a dance macabre, a kind of lighthearted art motif illustrating how we are all equal to death. We're all skeletons in the end. As they leave the church, they encounter a woman doomed to be burned at the stake. Her captors are convinced her witchcraft has caused the plague that's fallen on Sweden. They continue on, and on a farm, the squire encounters the former priest who convinced Antonius to go on the crusade in the first place. He's mad at him because it was all just a waste of time. The priest himself is now a thief and a general scoundrel. And again, there's just this whole theme of the futility of man's actions. We then finally get our characters all together on the same scene. Our juggler Joff and his crew are performing to an unenthusiastic crowd that, that eventually includes Antonius and his squire. This scene is interrupted by a traveling band of priests and plague victims. Many in this caravan are whipping themselves in penitence. These were known as flagellants, people who sought to purify themselves religiously through physical pain. This practice dates back to the 11th century and continues to some extent to the present day. The Black Death led to a surge in the practice. The flagellants verbally chastised those just hanging around watching jugglers when Judgment Day may be near. Antonius' squire scoffs at them as they march on. That evening, after the performance, Antonius ends up camped near Joff and his wife, and the group just continues reflecting on life while they are surrounded by so much death. Later, the soldiers who plan to burn the supposed witch come by, and Antonius asks her if she's actually seen the devil. He says he wants to ask the devil about God and try to get some answers. She is burned alive, but Antonius smuggles her something to block the pain. And again throughout, Antonius continues his chess game against death, and death is eyeing Joff and his wife with their toddler child as potential targets. Shaking his head, Joff, Joff swears to his wife that he can see Antonius is sitting with death and not playing by himself as they previously thought. She just assumes it's another of his tall tales as they travel on without the others. Even Joff himself isn't sure whether what he's seeing is real or not. Antonius and his company reach his castle. There's actually a band of about five of them now, not counting Joff's family who went on their own way. I'm just giving the highlights as usual. Antonius's wife is there, who he's not seen in ten years. It storms that night. And the movie makes us fear for Joff's family out in, out in the open. But in the end, death comes for all of those at Antonius's castle. 
By morning, the storm has passed and Joff's family enjoys a beautiful morning. In the distance, Joff sees a dance macabre of death leading Antonius and all those who are with him to the afterlife. His wife wants him to stop teasing, but we know it's real and death comes for us all. But Joff's day has not yet come. Life goes on. The silhouette here of this dance macabre, again, that's kind of hard to say, is absolutely iconic. There's a great chance you've seen it, even if you've never even heard of the seventh seal. On a hilltop, death leads six souls with his flowing black cloak and his scythe in the air. Those following him are hand in hand, dancing along with the last in line, playing a lute. And again, there's no real plot here, but definitely little narratives to keep it interesting. It's just a wonderful piece of art. Again, a movie vegetable that you need to see. It's a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, though it was somehow not even nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. Ingvar Bergman, however, would go on to direct three Oscar winners for Best Foreign Film, and he was nominated for Best Director three times and Best Original Screenplay four times. He also won an honorary Oscar in 1970. Again, this movie is about death. An important item for paleontologists is how different societies and cultures treat their dead, or how we deal with homicide, suicide, capital punishment, etc. Humans have long dwelt on what happens to us after we die, whether there's an afterlife, as perplexed Antonius in today's film, or we're reincarnated, or we just cease to exist and death is absolutely final. Just as we talk about with history, the ultimate truth is unknowable. We're now fairly certain that the Black Death was caused by bacteria carried by fleas which infested rats. As these rats made their way from Central Asia along the Silk Road and into Europe, Europe's population was devastated. Again, if I had said decimated, that would be an understatement. Accurate estimates are impossible, but we're talking 75 to 200 million deaths with 30 to 60% of Europe's population falling victim to the disease. It would be another 200 years before the population recovered to its pre-Black Death level. And it wasn't miraculously cured or anything. Outbreaks would recur for centuries. Some were immune, and people did get better about quarantining the affected. The mid-14th century was just by far the worst flare-up. So, the Crusades have come up several times in our timeline so far, but I don't think I've discussed them in much detail. Basically, the Crusades were just a series of dozens of religious wars and campaigns in medieval times. Mostly, we just hear about those aimed at liberating Jerusalem from Muslim control, but as we also saw in Alexander Nevsky, that they could be directed against any non-Catholic group. The First Crusade was called for by Pope Urban II in 1095. He hoped to help the Byzantine Empire, which again had evolved from the eastern half of the Roman Empire, fend off Turks migrating west. He also hoped to maintain Christian access to many of their holy sites in the Middle East, which were now under Muslim control. His call was answered, and men went for a variety of reasons, whether sent by their feudal lord, hoping to regain God's favor, or seeking personal wealth or glory. For two centuries, various waves of crusades were sent, but the Holy Land was never reclaimed. The last of the crusades would have ended about 50 years before our knight Antonius and the Seventh Seal would have begun his journey home to Sweden. And, of course, crusaders were not always the virtuous knights envisioned by their countrymen. Pillaging was rampant, as well as the slaughter of civilians, including the massacre of thousands of Jews. What about chess? One of the most well-known games in the world. Even those who don't know how to play know of it. Chess has evolved over the centuries, and we can trace back its roots to around 1,500 years ago in India, 
just like the plague, it spread across the Silk Road. By the 15th century, it was approximately the game we know today. So Antonius and the Seventh Steel could have been playing with a few different rules than we would have today. When we see Joff perform, he wears a costume we traditionally think of for like a, co- a court jester with one design on his left half and a completely different pattern on his on, in color on his right half. This is called motley, which basically does just mean random stuff thrown together. It's just been common for jesters, performing fools, and the like to wear motley. A similar role is that of the Harlequin in Italian theater. This is why the Joker's companion in the Batman comics is called Harley Quinn. And the term motley crew refers to a ragtag bunch of unsavory people thrown together, which of course makes it a good choice for a rock band in the 80s. Elsewhere in the world around this time, the Hundred Years' War between England and France was getting underway, and we'll be discussing it a lot more later on. Singapore begins to become a prominent trading center. And the Ming Dynasty in China will begin in 1368. And that's where we're headed next week, as we follow a group of Korean envoys navigating their tense relationship with the Ming in 2001's The Warrior. The Warrior. 